0: Luke chapter 9, beginning at verse 18. Please follow in your Bible, or use the Pew Bible to follow carefully and think and listen about what God is saying in His Word. Once when Jesus was praying in private and His disciples were with with Him, He asked them, "'Who do the crowds say I am?' They replied, "'Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah.'" Still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, the Christ of God. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone, and he said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and he must be killed, and on the third day be raised to life. Then he said to them all, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, and take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. I tell you the truth, some are standing here who will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. This is God's own holy word. We can go directly to the theme of a message this morning and declare to you that Jesus Christ will only mean to you whatever his cross means to you, no more and no less. That means there's no correct knowledge of Christ possible apart from from faith in what he did at his cross. And further, we learn, there is no real discipleship of Christ that does not shoulder a cross of deliberate self-denial for Jesus' sake. It's interesting to me to consider that Jesus spent almost 90% of his life living in a carpentry shop, first being there and watching Joseph work with tools, and then we assume doing that himself, measuring, sawing, cutting, shaping timbers. Isn't it interesting that he trusted the tools to be in the hands of others on the day when those tools nailed his flesh to a 40 or 50-pound cross beam that he then had to carry through the streets of Jerusalem? That cross beam was not simply weighed by the weight of its wood itself, but rather was weighted down by a mountainous penalty of the collective sins of humanity, centuries past and centuries to come. In order for Jesus to be God's Christ, our text is telling us that his cross was an absolute must. And it's further saying that to be a disciple who follows him in true faith, another cross is required. But the two are actually quite different. We are at a major turning point in the life of Christ and the development of the gospel. This is possibly more evident in the gospel of Mark where the confession of Peter in answer to who do you say I am is very markedly and literally a pivotal point of the entire gospel. Everything changes after that confession. You can see it in this gospel by what's coming next. Lord willing, next time, we're going to look at the great event of the transfiguration of Jesus. That event would not have happened if this event didn't happen. It's because of the confession of Christ that he was able to be revealed to them in the way that he was in the transfiguration. Now, Jesus has been... Letting out information about himself in parcels and pieces that people were able to take in. Healings, teachings, miracles, demon castings, calming of a lake, bringing a boy back to life. All these different things. And people were looking and beholding. Look what he does. Look at that. What do you think of that? But up until now, at least openly, we haven't heard too many people saying, Exactly who is this? Well, a little speculation. When he quieted the lake, the disciples said, Who is this? Who commands the winds and the waves? They were starting to ask that question, you see. And that question was now demanding to be answered. Who can do these things that we see him doing? They're going just from look at what he did to who is he? Now, our text divides into three very obvious sections, and we could take each of them as a sermon, but I'm choosing to see the span of them together today. Built on the question, who really is Jesus, we come to these divisions. Verses 18 to 20, first of all, your confession about Christ. Then, secondly, verses 21 and 22, the compelling necessity of Christ crucified. And thirdly, as a consequence, verses 23 to 27, the constant reality of a disciple's cross. I hope for you to see these things together, and in them is no less than the very core and heart of the Christian gospel. First of all, Luke 9, 18 to 20, raises a very blunt question and addresses it not just to Peter, not to 12 disciples, but to you. What is your confession about Christ? Usually when we talk to people about a confession, you know, we're we're giving an admission that we've done something wrong. Criminals are supposed to make a confession. I did this crime. I'm guilty of this. We're, of course, talking about something different, a confession that claims truth and says, I am admit to this truth. I sign on to this truth. And here we are at a climax hour, a climax truth in the development of the gospel and in our knowledge of Christ. One commentator said, if you could think as musicians think in terms of musical development within a piece, a symphony, a concerto, whatever is being written, of course, there are are ups and downs, there are loud places and soft places and And, you know, the music does all different things. But here, if the gospel is a symphony, is a place where the timpani starts to roll and the trumpets begin to come in and even the cymbals would crash. Because in the confession words of Peter in answer to this question today is the epicenter of the whole gospel of the cross. Peter was asked a question. You know that sometimes he answered, poorly or prematurely or had his, you know, his kneecap sticking out of his mouth as he hadn't thought carefully about what he was saying, but this time he answered wonderfully. First, the question was, who do men, who do the crowds say I am? What's the word on the street, men? You know that people have been following me, reacting to me, seeing what I do. What are they saying? And what do you think about what they're saying? Well, the replies came back as expected. Well, you're so much like John the Baptist. He was a phenomenon, so are you. You're even greater than that. You're like Elijah, the first of all the grand prophets of old. And others' names were given, all flattering. Flattering, but wrong. People usually think they're doing someone a favor by comparing them to a great personage of the past. People think they're doing Jesus a favor by comparing him to a personage of the past, but how do you compare the incomparable person? You can't flatter Jesus. And likening him to some great person who you admire is not at all a matter of having insight as to who he is. If I was to raise for you the the person in the name of George Washington, the first president of our country, the the great general of our revolution, he was a man who was peerless. In his day, they said nobody could sit on a horse like George Washington. All he had to do was sit on a horse, and they said, wow. Of course, he was six foot two, and, and he was handsome and strong. He wore a uniform well, and people said, man, that's a leader. But the interesting thing is that for all the flattery that would come in around George Washington, there were rather few people who really knew the man. He was almost a total enigma, and the biographers go to great length to try to discover who was he really in private. If you could get inside that, that sort of marble statue look of George Washington, what kind of a man was he? That's what Jesus is saying now. Who does the public think I am, and who do you think I am. Nominating Jesus to the front rank of noble human prophets is of no avail whatsoever. Do you know who does that to no avail? Islam. Islam says Jesus is a very great prophet, a very revered prophet. Of course, so was da 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 you know, another whole rank of people. That does no one in Islam any good, simply to think Jesus is a great prophet. I'm always interested in the articles that come out in the major news magazines, Time and Newsweek and these others, U.S. News, that at Easter time they always feel like, well, I guess we have to bear a nod to Christianity somewhere, and Christmas and Easter maybe we'll do that. And it might happen at Christmas, it might happen at Easter. But Time will have a front page or cover article, Who is Jesus?, In in my younger days, I used to think, oh, they're going to tell me about some new discovery of the archaeologists or something. No, they're not going to tell you anything new at all. They're just going to rehearse a lot of things, opinions of professors, who is Jesus, and I can tell you what the… I don't even have to open the magazine. The bottom line of the article will be, well, nobody really knows for sure. He was this phenomenon, but we just really can't know him. It's it's so interesting. Albert Schweitzer, many of you older folks know the name of… Albert Schweitzer, I think young people don't. He was a missionary in Africa, did a, built a wonderful clinic at a place called Lombarine in Africa where he ministered for free to thousands of people. He was, he was viewed almost as a saint. He was a musician who had an organ and could play it marvelously. He was a genius. He was master of many fields. The interesting thing is that as a missionary, he was no theologian. I'm not even sure Albert Schweitzer was a Christian. That might shock you, but you need to read his theology. Schweitzer would write about Christ and say, well, there was this wonderful man, Jesus, who made a great phenomenon, and so many were the legends and so differing the opinions that nobody could really be sure whether he existed or not. Wow, that's not the statement of a Christian. Albert Schweitzer didn't seem to have any idea who Jesus was. Well, now the question is asked of Peter, and as the spokesman of the Twelve, he blurts it out. It's a wonderful statement. It's a short statement. It's a powerful statement. It's a necessary statement. It's a world-shaking statement. You are the Christ of God. Now, when that comes from a Jewish-trained man, Peter, humble, humble, Blue collar guy that he was, he was no priest, he didn't have a high education, but he had been taught the Old Testament scripture. Peter was saying, You are the Messiah. You are the awaited one of Israel. In Greek, you are Christos, the anointed one, the answer. You are it. In the slang of the ghetto, you are the man. You're the one that all of history has awaited. Now elsewhere the Scripture says Peter didn't know this by himself. It was revealed to him. It was as if a man and all mankind had been stumbling around in the dark saying someday a great one is going to come. We haven't seen him yet. We, we expect him. We don't know where he is. We keep bumping into things in the dark because we haven't seen him. All of a sudden the sun came out. Peter saw him. You are The Christ. Now remember what Luke wrote his gospel about. If I can remind you, we started, we've been studying this now for quite a long time. And and, uh, he endeavored in the very beginning verses of Luke to investigate things and lay out everything about Christ, who he was, how he was declared to be that. And so it's really quite a climax that we've come to now when Peter makes this declaration, you are Christ. The challenge of our text is, is this your confession? Who do you say Jesus is? Now, you need to consider that not simply as a nominal thing. Oh, I've called him Christ. I joined a church a long time ago when I was 12 or 14 years old. I signed on the dotted line. They gave me a Bible with my name in it. Are you a person who... With all of your mind, with all of your heart, all the reasoning of your intellect, and everything you are is ready to say what Peter said. You are the Christ of God. You are God visible in human flesh. That's what Peter was saying. Is that what you say? Because when you say it, And when you mean it and when you live it, that confession is a world-transforming and life-transforming confession for any man or woman. Now, secondly, we go to verses 21 and 22, having confessed that truth, you're the Christ of God. Immediately, Jesus is going to correct what is probably a wrong idea. The Christ of God meant a general on a white stallion riding in to save The Jews from the Romans, right? Wrong. And he wants to tell them and says, look, I just want to share this with you in confidence. There's a a bit of a secrecy about verse 21. It's not that they would never be able to tell it, but for now, I'm telling you this. The whole world will only appreciate it later is what Jesus was implying. The Son of Man, the one you have just called the Christ, must suffer many things, be rejected by elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, be killed, and on the third day be raised to life. This is the first clear revelation of the cross, following immediately upon the first clear declaration of Jesus as the Christ. You know what you're supposed to know, Peter. Now let me tell you the next step of what you're supposed to know that will shock you, and when it happens, you won't believe it, but you've got to hear it. There's a must here, a compelling necessity about Christ crucified. He must suffer. He must be killed. Not this probably will happen This is going to happen, and history requires it to happen. Ancient prophecy requires it to happen. Isaiah 53, it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. The Lord will make his life a guilt offering. A cross with the perfect Son of God dying on it was a necessity of God's divine plan. The great holiness of God... The dire dilemma of the sinfulness of man were two things so far apart. They were opposite poles of a magnet. They repelled each other. You could not bring them together in any way unless something got between and brought them together, and that was the atoning death of the appointed Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, the God-man. He could reconcile. And he did it then, this must aspect, this Compelling aspect of the necessity of the cross points then to the obedience of Christ, the willingness of Christ to do this. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, the words are quoted from Scripture and put in the mouth of Christ Lo, I am come to do your will as it is written about me in the book. You see, that was Jesus' theme in coming to earth. I've come to do the will of my Father, not reluctantly, eagerly. Is there a house anywhere that has not at some time contained reluctant Johnny? Reluctant Johnny. The son, the mother calls, Johnny, remember, it's your job to set the table. We're almost ready for dinner. Please set the table. Johnny's absorbed in a video game. Yes, Mom. Ten minutes later, Johnny, please stop your game. Come set the table. Yes, Mom. I'll be right there. Ten minutes later, are you kids getting this? I see some moms looking at some kids. We need the table set right now. Okay. Johnny goes and sets the table. Johnny does his duty, not willingly, not eagerly, but reluctantly when dragged to it. That is not a picture of Jesus. He was no reluctant Johnny. He eagerly, ran to fulfill his Father's will. I came into this world to do your will, and I will do all that is written about me in the book. Elsewhere, Jesus said, I have a baptism to be baptized with. He wasn't talking about water rituals. He was talking about the cross. I have a baptism to be baptized with, his death, and I am constrained, pressed, until it's completed. The cross wasn't an appendage, it wasn't an accident, it wasn't a happenstance, it was the compelling goal of Jesus for being on earth. Among the early martyrs of church history when you study church history, I remember in seminary, Polycarp stood out to me among… there are a lot of guys whose stories are kind of boring, but Polycarp's story, Google him and Google You'll find the name Polycarp on your computer somewhere. Interesting guy. As an elderly man, he was brought to charges for his long years of faith in Christ and convicted by the government and taken to be burned at the stake. He was an old man. Polycarp, the legends at least says, when they took him to the stake, they got out the chains, and they were going to chain him to the post to burn him. And he said, no, those won't be needed. Put those aside. I consider it a privilege to stand here and die for my Lord. And the legend says that's how he died, standing, not moving from the stake as his body was burned. I don't know if that legend is true or not, but it certainly points out a picture of the same stout resolution at facing death that Jesus had in a much greater way. Nobody chained him. Nobody dragged him. Nobody had to call him three or four times. He went to death compelled by the necessity of accomplishing this thing. It wasn't an act done to him. It was an act in which he participated willingly, Christ crucified, offering himself If he was to be the Christ of God that Peter confessed, his death was a necessity. Now, third and quickly this morning, Jesus included more here. Another chapter almost is in these few verses as he turns in verse 23 to speak to disciples, and those were the disciples standing there before him as well as 2011 disciples, to tell them what the consequences would be of making this right confession You are the Christ of God. And recognizing the compelling necessity of the cross, here's the next thing. Thirdly, there's a constant reality of a cross for every disciple. Now, we get really confused here. Don't confuse a disciple's cross with the cross of Jesus. He died once for all. He saved others from sin. He offered himself sinless unto God. We don't die for anybody else. We don't save anybody else, and we're not sinless. So our going to the cross is an absolutely different thing. There's also the total confusion about Luke 9.23 and what it is to bear a cross. Here are some wrong ideas about that. Oh, I guess my cross in life must be my alcoholic husband. Oh, I have to just bear the cross of my gossipy, bitter mother-in-law. By the way, my mother-in-law spent a week in my house last week, and I don't think that about her, just in case you, you have that confused. Oh, my boss is a tyrant. That's my cross to bear. Oh, I was born with arthritis. I guess I'll carry it as a cross. Oh, I have diabetes. That's my cross. Stop. None of those things are crosses. None of those things have anything to do with what Jesus was talking about. I like to make the difference between thorns and crosses. A thorn is suffering that you encounter in this world, pain, distress from other people, from disease, from tragedy, from accident, from bad circumstances, unpleasantness, something you can't prevent that you have to experience. That's a thorn. It's not a cross that you take up. You didn't volunteer for it. If you could, you would avoid it. Maybe you're not able to avoid it. It's put upon you. Taking up a cross is something completely different. It's a voluntary act. And Jesus tells us what it is in the words, deny himself. It's an act of self-denial. Wasn't Jesus' cross self-denial. He came into this world as the most privileged being in the universe, the son of the most high God, the co-creator of the universe. What was he doing getting nailed to a cross? He was denying himself absolutely and completely. And he says, you disciples, if you're going to be my disciple, you won't be saved by denying yourself. Don't make that mistake. But once you have said to Jesus, you are the Christ, and recognize the compelling necessity of his cross for your sin, there is for you a cross of self-denial. Why this? It really isn't hard to figure out, because serving ourselves is the number one compelling activity of just about every man, woman, and child in this world. I always think of the prodigal son coming to his father. Two sons in the family. The son had been dwelling all of his growing up years. I don't know how old he was. He might have been 32. He might have been 18. I have no idea. But he came to his father and he said, Father, give me the part of the estate that is mine. That son grew up and and he had... Fifty percent stamped in his brain, half of everything I see in this farmyard, in these fields, in this livestock is mine. I want it. And he went and pursued a totally selfish life, and it ruined him. The Scripture says when we're born again by the Spirit of God, true repentance humbles us so that a new creation starts. And fundamental to that new creation is a recognition that our worst enemy is self. Self is like a monster sometimes, not always but often, a monster that cries out to be served and petted and fed and indulged. And only when you've come to a point of radical repentance at recognizing the grace of God in the cross of Jesus Christ To die and save you, do you become anything like Job at the end of the book of Job, chapter 42, when that man finally stopped justifying? You know what Job is? It's one long self justification, the whole book. Now, Job was a good man, he was a godly man. But what he did, the entire book, was justify himself. I couldn't be guilty enough to have all this terrible stuff happen to me. He said that 53 ways from tomorrow. Finally, in Job 42.6, he said, I abhor myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. I am sick and tired of asserting self. You, O oh God, are the great one. You deserve everything, and whatever you do with me, I can't argue. Once I thought of a comparison of how self works in our lives like natural gas, if you'll allow this. I read in a magazine one time that natural gas, as it comes from the ground, is not only invisible, of course, it's also odorless. Now you say, wait a minute, I know what natural gas smells like. It smells awful. It smells like sulfur. You know it right away if it starts leaking in your kitchen. But do you know why it smells like sulfur? I understand that the gas company puts a chemical in it that makes it smell like sulfur. Why? Obvious reason. They want you to know if there's gas loose in your house because that's a dangerous situation. But they have to put that chemical in there for you to recognize the danger. It seems to me that conversion to Christ, making that confession, you are the Christ, making that confession, I come to his cross to find all meaning, brings us the Holy Spirit of God who for the first time makes this monster called self stink. We don't stink quite so much until the spirit is there. And then we start smelling ourselves and say, Ew, this isn't good. Then we start discovering 2 Corinthians 5 that says Christ died for all that they who live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him who died and rose. Then we start discovering Galatians 2.20 that says I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me and the life I now live in the flesh. I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I'm not serving myself anymore. In fact, I've got to take myself in hand every day and thrust a spear through that pride, that independence, that self-willfulness that wants to serve just me. What then does it mean in, in a particular sense to deny self and take up your cross? Well, I could go on and on with examples. I'm just going to give you a handful I think it means spending time in serving the troublesome, annoying, difficult person in your sphere of experience who, who you don't get any strokes from being around, but they sure get something from you, and not indulging yourself by going off just to always be with the friends who make you feel good. I think it means choosing habits of sacrificial giving with your money and your material things that will enhance the kingdom of God instead of spending it all on yourself. I think it means disciplining yourself to study Scripture and pray instead of simply vegging out in front of the TV all the time. It means I have to count a cost to do important things to follow Christ and put myself on the cross. Men... I would say it absolutely means an act of denial with a spear thrust into your lust, if you must do it, to turn your back on pornography in all the forms that it is found in our culture. And to say, I will love my wife and find my affection in her arms and nowhere else. It means speaking up for things that are true when. That's going to cast a shadow on you or make you maybe a little bit noticed by people or embarrassed by being identified with the truth. Oh, you can go on and on, can't you? Taking on discomfort, maybe shame, maybe difficulty, to serve Christ as a conscious choice rather than serving self. Our text says as it closes that Jesus saw those who are losers of self as finders. He who loses his life for my sake, the same shall find it. Way back in some dusty lesson of world history, you studied about Charlemagne, Charles the Great. Charlemagne was an emperor like no other. He controlled a large portion of Europe in the Middle Ages. He died in the vicinity, I don't have the exact year, around 800 roughly. He was buried with pomp and splendor. Two hundred years later, descendants of Charlemagne still remembered his power and his glory because there had been nobody like him since that time. For some reason, some of his royal uh, descendants said, let's open the tomb of Charlemagne, and they did. It was an amazing big tomb as befits his station, and there in the tomb was the skeleton of Charlemagne seated on the Jewel-encrusted throne that he had been buried upon. His remains, of course, after 200 years were skeletal, but on his head was a golden crown that had been put there. And to the amazement of many, there was a Bible in his lap. And the bony skeletal finger of Charlemagne pointed to the text that had been put there when he died. The text was, "'What good is it for a man to gain the whole world?' and lose his soul. Charlemagne had the whole world. I don't know whether that was his own sympathy being expressed or someone else's, but as a vivid manifestation of the truth that Jesus talked here. If we suffer with Christ, we're going to reign with Christ. If we go to the cross with Christ, we're going to be exalted in the resurrection day with Christ. If we give up some things that make us comfortable or or that we would like to have right now, we're going to get back so much that whatever we've given up is going to seem like it was nothing. This word in closing. When weighed against the eternal destiny that we gain, we can say along with the Puritan Samuel Rutherford this quote, Christ's cross is the sweetest burden that I ever bore. It is such a burden as wings are to a bird or sails to a ship to carry me forward to my final harbor. Thanks be to God for the sweet burden of the cross of Jesus. Our Father, help us to make the good confession. Not in nominal words that just trip off our tongue. May we with Peter say, you are the Christ of God. And say it with the passion of our lives and all-consuming confession that he might be Lord. And then look at him in the compulsion of his cross and see, too, the reality of a cross of self-denial for those who would follow. Lord, it looks like a hard way, but it's a way of wonders, a way of miracles, a way of eternal blessing. I pray that you would sustain us in claiming it, for Jesus' sake. Amen.